front of you. That'll be on page 184. We'll read verse 2 of Leviticus 19 and then skip forward to verse 11 and read verses 11 through 18. Let us give our attention to God's holy word as it is read in the presence of his people. He gives it to us for our good. God's perfect word, his holy word. The grass will wither, the flowers will fall, the word of the Lord will stand forever. Leviticus 19, verse 2. We'll begin at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And skip over to the next column, verse 11. Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Amen. Then if you would go to Matthew chapter 5, our New Testament reading and sermon text this morning. We are ending this section in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the end of chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Once again, give your attention to the reading of God's Word. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us humbly consider these things together, beloved people of God. At one point in his life, C.S. Lewis was accused of, or at least the comment was made by another scholar, that he did not care for the Sermon on the Mount. The reasons given for that probably related to C.S. Lewis's uh, philosophical approach to Christianity, deep theological treatises, the kinds of things that uh, he would write about. Certainly in the mid-20th century, a lot of the conversation was around 
having the Sermon on the Mount as something of a social program, that, it, that this is how society could be uh, improved, kind of have a, a general Christian ethical flavor, use the teachings of Jesus. Of course, we've seen the, the way in which that cannot work both in terms of our current context and in your approach to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is being very clear that his followers are a distinct people on the earth and they live with a a distinct and in many ways radical uh, view on how to do things and how to live. But Lewis responded to this criticism or this comment with his typical wit and insight. He says this, As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. Though he's no longer with us, let that be a warning for those who would criticize C.S. Lewis. We all find this to be the case. Every statement that we've looked at from Jesus, every declaration in the Sermon on the Mount, introduces us into a, a very difficult situation. It, it confronts us with both truth and conviction. We are hit with conviction just like uh, a sledgehammer. We realize, for instance, uh, last week, as we saw, we struggle mightily with wanting to protect our own reputation, wanting to advance our own names. And when opportunities are given to us to testify to the gospel of grace, when we bear reproach for Christ, how often the flesh in our hearts would rather protect our own reputation. We realize how much we struggle with anger, how much we struggle with lust, how when we look at our lives through the lens of the heart, which is the whole point of Jesus' teaching, is that look at your life through the lens of the heart. Where does your heart stand relative to these commands of God? The pharisaical approach is checking off the box in a certain way and trying to carve out ways in which you can sort of go your own way on things. Jesus says, that is not what my people do. That is not what my followers do. So all of these things tend to discourage us in a certain way with conviction. But on the other hand, this is Jesus giving the commands of his kingdom. Jesus is really our Lord. The life that he gives is really spiritual life. And that which he commands us to do is not for nothing. And so there is an encouragement in all of these things to know that our Lord and King is commanding us all of these things and commanding that we live this way because, and through that we know that those who humbly receive the word of Christ, that those who humbly come under his lordship and his power and his word will really and truly begin to exemplify these things in life in real ways. That which God commands He gives the grace to carry out. Of course, not perfectly and not without stumbling along the way. But he gives it. That which he commands, he gives. So as we close out this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus closes this section by contrasting the approach of the Pharisees to the righteousness of his kingdom by pointing out once again the need for heavenly intervention in the human heart. Because what we are called to do in loving our enemies, 
in praying for those who persecute us. That which we are called to do, we can only do as we see it done to us by the God who loved us while we were still his enemies. That which we are called to do, we will only do as we see it done to us by the God who loved us while we were still his enemies. First uh, main point this morning, the idea of limiting our love, limiting the category of neighbor. Can we make this category neighbor as small as possible so that we can see ourselves as being obedient to this command? That really is uh, the pharisaical approach. How do you define neighbor? Who is my neighbor. As we saw in the Old Testament reading this morning, uh, all of God's word, and certainly in the Old Testament, God's, God's people were clearly called to a selfless and a sacrificial love. There was no excuse to not be loving. There was uh, no reason that to not make sacrifices to your own interest so you could help the people around you. The, all of this is very obvious, and we see it uh, throughout God's word. But the command, of course, as we saw in Leviticus 19, love and serve and do no wrong and do not harm and do not endanger your neighbor. And so the conversation became, especially for those with the pharisaical approach, who is my my neighbor? This is precisely the issue in Luke chapter 10 in the lead up to the Good Samaritan. We read there that a teacher in the law came up to Jesus to test him saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? The what was going on in his heart was, was not an honest, humble attempt to try to understand more deeply the word of God. His desire, this teacher of the law, his desire was to justify himself. He wanted to be able to look at his own life and say, I'm actually doing pretty good at this. And certainly we understand the way in which we do this in our own life. What does God's word really command me to do? To to whom am I actually expected to make sacrifices? For whom? And what does God expect me to do? The story of the Good Samaritan turns all of this on its head, which is how Jesus responds. Tells him the story of the, the Good Samaritan. We all are familiar with it. A couple of men pass by whom you would expect to help. Priest, Levite. The Samaritan comes along. And he helps a man who is left for dead, who has been robbed, and who is there on the road. And Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Jesus' point is, we are not to live trying to minimize the category of neighbor. We are not to look at the people around us and try to say, well, I think we can sort of cut these people out of the category of neighbor, and these people definitely not in. I have this very small group that I'm commanded to be sacrificial and selfless towards. The point is, you are to seek to prove yourself to be a neighbor whom God brings into your life providentially. Make yourself a neighbor to people. Prove yourself to be a neighbor. Don't count down the number that you have. The love of neighbor was central. 
in all of God's word and in Old Testament Israel. Another issue, of course, that we have to recognize was that Israel, as a as a geopolitical manifestation of the kingdom of God, there are many things, many issues that uh, came up that do not come up to the church today. This is, of course, a, a much longer discussion. We don't have time to unpack all of it this morning. But Israel was not simply to lay down for their enemies. And so the mentality towards outsiders, towards those not part of the covenant people of God, there were certain ways that they had to work through those issues. And God uh, lays those things down in his word. They were not to lay down in front of their enemies. They were to fight those who were seeking to take from them the promised land. But what's important to recognize generally is that these kinds of things were political issues. They were not personal issues. And so as God's people Uh, encounter those who are not a threat to their uh, enjoyment of the promised land. Uh, They were not called to expel them. They were not called to to eliminate all of them. It was those within the promised land that God calls them to expel from that land. Even as God's people were brought into exile, God says, work for the good of the people to whom I send you. Do good to them. Seek their good. And so these are uh, not personal issues. God did not call them to hate those who were of other people, but he called them to defend uh, the nation that he had established. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, it says this, that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. If somebody came to them and wasn't actually a political threat to their existence as a nation, they were not called to hate them. They were called to do good to them. We see uh, we have this own, uh, our own tendency to think in these kinds of ways, wanting to shave down the category of neighbor. But we see also in the Old Testament that there was a call to love your enemies, to do good to your enemies. Exodus chapter 23 says this, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Don't Don't do wrong just because he's your enemy. It goes on, If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Jesus is then very naturally bringing us to the fulfillment of all that has come before. The the summary of the Old Testament was not love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In many ways, that was the, the abuse of that command that had been established through common practice or common conversation. There were communities um, amidst Israel, for instance, the Qumran community that has this explicitly in their code, have love for your neighbor, but have hatred for your enemy. Jesus comes to say the true fulfillment of the law is something different. So we are not allowed to limit our love, but the foundation for that is found in the question Did God limit his love? The motivation for us to live according to the way that Jesus calls us to live here in Matthew chapter 5 is by looking to God and seeing the way that he has acted towards us. And reflecting the character of God is clearly in the background of this whole passage where Jesus says we are to be sons of our Father in heaven. We are to reflect the character of our Heavenly Father. And what is God like? What kind of disposition does he have towards humanity 
in general. And what we find as we consider God and his goodness and his works, as we consider his word, is that God unceasingly pours out blessings upon us from heaven. And he does so in a way that it comes to both the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, God is perfect. He is simple in the sense that he does not change and he is not made up of of parts. He's not some days angry and some days joyful. He is not some days wrathful and other days gracious. He is always everything that he is. And so this doesn't discount the fact that God uh, has a wrath against sin and injustice that is being revealed and that will finally and fully be revealed at the last day. Nevertheless, God is always pouring out rich blessings upon his creation. Psalm 145 says this, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. When the sun rose this morning, now there are scientific explanations for why that happened. Uh, The the sun didn't actually rise, the earth tilts on its axis. It's always fun when you encounter uh, a junior high or high school student who likes to point that out. The sun didn't actually rise. The earth's tilting on its axis. But the sun does not rise this morning without God deciding that it would be so. Likewise, he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, we're so far removed from an agricultural kind of mindset that some people have begun to take this to mean God sends sometimes good things, the sun, sometimes bad things. The point of this is both are good. You need the sun and you need the rain. In the desert climate, the rain was an enormous blessing. Those who garden, those who farm know this to be true. I was out in the backyard yesterday putting the hose on the grass, trying to, you know, make it less brown, get some some water in the soil. The rain is an immense blessing. And the point is, God is pouring out blessings unceasingly. He is good. He is gracious. He is a kind disposition. He is one who gives and who gives and who gives. He is a marvelously benevolent and gracious God, good to all that he has made, sending blessings to those who do not deserve it, to the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. What does this mean? This means that as children of our Heavenly Father, we are to have that same kind of gracious disposition. In all of our dealings, in all of our life, in all that we do, we are to remember that our Heavenly Father is a gracious and a giving and a benevolent and a kind God who pours out blessings upon His creation, whether we deserve it or not. Anthony Burgess says this in a a prayer. Your overflowing goodness overcomes me. If only I had the hearts of all men and angels to praise you. He gives and he gives and he gives. And he does not stop. He is a marvelously loving and good God. But we can consider that and see the way that God pours out his blessings upon all of the earth. But we have even much more reason to stand in awe. God calls us to love our enemies, but we will not rightly understand that command, nor will we have the proper motivation to live out that command until we honestly look at ourselves and understand that we love God as forgiven enemies, that God has worked for us 
while we were alienated from him. That Christ died for us while we were still sinners. That God reconciled us while we were opposed to him. Until you are willing to say that without Christ, without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that we are enemies of God, unless you see that alienated from Christ, you are his enemy, you will fail to see the depth of what Jesus calls us to do here, and you will fail to have the proper motivation to live it out. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this point. He says, the natural man is prepared to admit that perhaps he is not entirely perfect. It's a very natural thing to admit, to err as human. He will say, I know I'm not a complete saint. There are certain defects in my character. But you will never find a man who is not a Christian feeling that he is all wrong. That he is vile. He is never poor in spirit. He never sees himself as a hell-deserving sinner. If you embrace the truth that without Christ you are an enemy of God, you will begin to know humility. Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Of course, two verses before that, Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How easy it is to justify living with malice in your heart towards your enemies, to do good to those whom you love, to hold malice toward those whom you are tempted to hate. But when you see all of redemption, every forgiven sinner as an enemy turned friend, an enemy turned child, turned redeemed saint, then we can no longer justify the natural inclinations of our hearts, the way that our flesh tempts us to think. There's another Puritan prayer that says this, What a blessed exchange you have made with me to give me yourself an infinite sum for myself a mere nothing. It's kind of worse than we're mere nothings, isn't it? It's not that God took no notice of us. There are a lot of people in our lives that we never really take notice of. We were opposed to God. How often in our lives there are those that we don't really notice, there are those that we notice because there's something that we have against them and the malice that fills our hearts. We're worse than nothings. We were enemies of God. We slapped him on the cheek. And how did he reconcile us to himself? He bore the slap of retaliation in Jesus Christ. You see, our greatest call in life, the the greatest... uh, question that we have to answer is to make sure that we understand that we were enemies of God, but in Christ we no longer are enemies. None of us can deny our sinfulness, our wickedness before God. In our sins, we are vile, wretched sinners, but while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Repent, believe, trust, in the one who reconciles us to our creator. This is Jesus' point, that if you only love those whom you enjoy loving, only those that reciprocate to you in some advantageous way, you're merely doing the earthly thing. There's one author that says, to return 
evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. That is godly. That is heavenly. Just like we said, we, we slapped God on the cheek in our rebellion. And what does he do? He responds with the ultimate good and gracious act of giving his son. To love those whom uh, are close to you is merely a human thing. There's kind of a, a humorous way of pointing this out uh, and how people always recognize it. There was a congresswoman uh, who's a bit of a celebrity this past week, and she was visiting her grandmother in Puerto Rico, and she was taking all of these pictures of the way her grandmother's house is run down, her apartment or something, her roof is falling off, and she's posting pictures uh, on the internet and saying, someone needs to take care of this. And there were people kind of on both sides of the political aisle responding and saying, um, maybe you should take care of it. You were just po- posting pictures of your new Tesla last week. You're a celebrity. You're on the covers of magazines. You probably have the means to make sure that your grandma has a nice roof. The point is, we understand earthly human love. We love those whom, to whom we are close. We love our family. We love those who uh, God brings into our life and we enjoy loving One of the starkest examples of this is the mob boss, at least the way it's portrayed in movies. I guess I don't have much of a personal interaction. The Norwegian mafia was long gone by the time I was born. But that's the way mob bosses are portrayed in television and movies, aren't they? They lavish their children and their family with gifts. They have the wad of cash and they'll hand out bills and they uh, give to building projects at the local church or parish. And they're very giving and benevolent to those, who, uh, to, to those to whom they are close. But of course, it is just as much as they love those who are close to them is how much they fiercely hate and terrorize those who are against them. It was in the novel The Godfather, I think, where it said, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. That's human love. That's earthly love. Keep them closer so that when they wrong you, you will be able to retaliate and to do so quickly. If you love those who love you, Jesus says, or who belong to you in some intimate way, your love is no different than those whom you would consider to be the wickedest people on earth, the tax collectors, those who were so hated and looked upon disdainfully because of the way that they cheated people out of their money. Pagans, what do they do? They understand that you love your family. Jesus calls us to that and to something greater. It's not discounting the love of family. And of course, we love those in our lives with certain varying degrees. You are to love your spouse most fiercely. You are to love your children with a a love that empties all that you are and you give and you give and you get those are good things those are wonderful things that we find in scripture but it also doesn't discount what we are called to do radically in obedience to christ to have a gracious and benevolent disposition towards all and even to love our enemies to be like our father in heaven who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good the just and the unjust jesus says love them and pray for them think of someone in your life Someone whom you are tempted to hate. And pray for them every day this week. Spend uh, serious time praying for them. 
that God would be with them, that God would bless them, perhaps that God would convert them, that God would call them back from a a time of wandering, or that God would encourage them by his grace. Pray for them every day. And if you feel exactly the same in one week, then you can come and tell me about it, and I'll, I'll buy you lunch. It'll be on me. And we'll talk through some things. But pray for them. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Love them. John Stott says this. Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? Once again, look to redemption. Look to Christ. Look to God who is filled with grace to understand how we are to live this out. What is God like? What does Jesus show us? And the life that he gives to us as we come to him in in humble faith, trusting in his work, understanding that he gives us the Holy Spirit in order that we might show forth that life that he gives us. It's the life that he shows the life lived uh, where Jesus was on earth. We end with this call, as Jesus says, to be perfect, just as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is not saying that we will achieve some kind of sinlessness in this life, but rather that in Christ we are being made complete. In Christ we are being made whole. One of the great, uh, one of the great verses of all the New Testament says this, Speaking of Christ in Colossians 1, Him we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. How do we get on the path towards becoming complete and perfect in Christ? We come into the community that has Jesus Christ set forth week after week after week. He is proclaimed. He is shown forth. He is presented to all of us as a perfect Savior. As a complete Savior who not only forgives our sins, but grants to us His righteousness. Who not only grants to us His righteousness, but gives us His Holy Spirit. Who not only gives to us His Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is then tasked with giving us that new life putting it into our very souls that we may live it out. Romans 5, 5 says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If we come to God as empty vessels, understanding our wretchedness in our sin, understanding our need for redemption in Christ, then there will be nothing but for God to fill us with his love by the power of the Spirit. We are to be discouraged by many words in the Sermon on the Mount as we look at our own ability. Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. You must refrain from sinful anger. You must fight for inner purity from lust. You must guard your tongue. You must settle uh, with those who are against you and you them. You must speak the truth always. You must not take revenge. You must bear reproach for Christ willingly. You must love your enemies. It is like being hit with a sledgehammer in many ways. There's discouragement in it. But at the same time, it is those who are truly discouraged. Those who will see their own ability to follow through on all of this. That will look to God. That will come to God as those who are poor in spirit. Again, it brings us back to the Beatitudes. Are you poor in spirit? Do you come to God confessing that you need him? 
Do you come to the Lord confessing that without him you will fail? That without relying upon him you have no hope of living unto all of these things? It is the poor in spirit. It is those who mourn over sin who will know the communion with God which is the vital ingredient to beginning to live like Christ. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if God is working his grace in us, then we can know that he will complete that work. We do so in mighty faith, looking to God, looking to Christ, the God who worked for us while we were his enemies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for these good and gracious promises. And since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves of every defilement. Bring holiness to completion in the fear of you. Give us grace to do so. Give us grace to live according to the way that our Lord calls us. May we look upon redemption. Trust first in the forgiveness and reconciliation that you give to us. And walk forward in the new life that Christ grants to us by the power of the Spirit. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.